Grant, O oh Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O oh Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. What does it mean that we are now living in a secular society? It means that we no longer look to a God for guidance concerning faith, behavior, or accountability. Hence, the institutions of Western civilization become laws unto themselves. We, are, we, re, we replace our trust with trust in fallen human beings as our guides and standards. Democracy becomes unworkable. The institution of marriage crumbles. Scripture tells us God made us for us Adam and Eve, and Facebook tells us that there are now 56 recognized genders. George Marsden's book, The Soul of the American University, From Protestant Establishment to Established Unbelief, and let me repeat that, to Established Unbelief, discloses the roots of our present campus chaos. We have neither the time nor the need for more evidence from the pulpit showing the decline and the beginning of the decline of the greatest entity known in all of history, Western civilization. Oz Guinness is right. The abiding question is, will we sever or will we recover? the roots, our Christian roots of this civilization. Tomorrow we will show how Christians can live either way, whether we recover or whether we sever our Christian roots. But if we sever them, we will, it will be a calamity for our civilization. Our text comes from 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, the ninth verse. For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. This text shows how an essential aspect of the Christian faith is virtually unknown. Righteousness is the opposite of condemnation. Would you have thought that? If I had started this off and said, tell me, what is the, right, right, the opposite of condemnation? Would you have said righteousness? But the scripture does say righteous. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Righteousness is the opposite of condemnation. Is that not a surprise? Ross Duthat's book, Bad Religion, How We Have Become a Nation of Heretics, is not an exaggeration. Let us focus on this one word about how bad religion has come. That word is righteousness. 
I remember some years ago, many years ago, driving up the New Jersey Turnpike uh, on my way to my parish in New York City with three children on the back seat. Martha asked, what are you going to preach about? I replied, righteousness. And a great groan came up from the back of the seat. Um, we groan when we hear the word righteous. My intention for this sermon is for us to discover the relief, the delight, and the joy of that word. But first, we must understand its opposite. What is the ministry of condemnation? It is the ministry of the law, the Ten Commandments, the two great commandments, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and all thy strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus explains the depth of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman in lust hath committed adultery in his heart. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, do not resist evil, but overcome it with good. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. If one can slip by the Ten Commandments with one's own righteousness intact, it is exceedingly more difficult to wiggle through the Sermon on the Mount and remain uncondemned. As John Stott has taught us, the severe duty of the law is to condemn. And yet the law is glorious. Without the law, there would be chaos and anarchy. Worse than we can ever imagine that would be. Scripture teaches us that law is just, it is right, and it is holy, but it is also the strength of sin. The law, though glorious, is powerless to make us righteous, to make us just. Shakespeare's Portia says it well, in the course of justice, none of us could see salvation. Well then, how do we see salvation? People talk about the Sermon on the Mount in ways that make one wonder if they've ever read it. No mention is made of mercy, no mention of forgiveness, it is all about how we must act or must not act, must do and must be. It is hard to see how anyone can, through all those texts, maintain and keep one's own righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount is a severe chemotherapy for the malignancy of our self-righteousness. But, but where is then the gospel? Martin Kaler teaches us that the Sermon on the Mount is an introduction to the passion narrative. 
It brings us to our knees, for we are all sinners. To our knees, which is the only posture appropriate to receive the righteousness of God. The crucifixion of Jesus, whereby he makes us righteous, a righteousness of the heart, not a righteousness of rules. Salvation comes with the mystery and ministry of righteousness. That is, according to St. Paul, infinitely more glorious than the, necess but, than the necessary but condemning ministry of the law. The word for glorious can be translated splendid. This splendid righteousness is certainly not our own. It is unmistakably the righteousness of God. Many great Christians have been converted by something very simple. All of a sudden they realize that the righteousness of God is not a passive adjective describing him, but is his act making us right. It is not that Christ is righteous and I am not, and therefore I am condemned by Christ. That would make that commendation even more difficult than that of the law. Nor is it a passive attribute of God. Rather, it is a verb. Righteousness is the very action of God in Christ. If you would see the righteousness of Christ, the very action of God, look on Jesus as he declared the repentant tax collector justified rather than the, the Pharisee who insisted and trusted in his own righteousness. Look on Jesus as he forgives the adulterer and bids her to sin no more. If you want to see the righteousness of God, look at Jesus healing the woman with the issue of blood. Look on Jesus in pain upon the cross, and you see the righteousness of God who justifies the unjustifiable sinners and begins to make us righteous. Look upon Jesus sharing a meal in the road of Emmaus and eating fish and you see the victorious righteousness of God on Easter. When Samuel Crossman saw this glorious righteousness, he wrote, Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord did take frail flesh and die? This is the ministry that Paul is telling us that far exceeds the ministry of the law. The law is glorious, even though it results in condemnation and death. The word for glory can indeed be translated splendid. How many Christians do they understand themselves to be servants of a splendid righteousness? Failing to know this righteousness of God is to be ignorant of Christianity itself. We are warned in this very lesson that a veil yet covers the hearts that keeps the glorious and splendid righteousness from being seen. And when this happened, people naturally react against the ministry of condemnation. An example, a widely popular work in the 
late, the late 17th century called the whole duty of man was totally devoid of grace and any good news or any splendid righteousness. David Hume was given a copy of this by his mother and he said he felt the condemnation in that ministry. He said he much preferred Cicero's offices to Christianity and he regretted on his deathbed that he was dying before he could extirpate Christianity from Scotland. Thinking the whole duty of man represented the Christian faith, Hume was unaware of the splendid righteousness. Similarly, Edward Gibbon, the justifiably esteemed author of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, attributed that fall to Christianity. He was doubtless influenced by William Law, who was a member of the Gibbon household during Edward's impressionable youth. John Wesley, after his encounter with the Moravians, wrote to William Law asking him why he had not taught him the good news, God's righteousness, and suggested that Law himself had not heard it. I believe Wesley was right. Here, Gibbon's criticism of Christianity was actually a criticism of the ministry of condemnation that he thought and was taught by William Law to believe was Christian. There are many such illustrations of non-believers rejecting the ministry of condemnation, thinking that they are rejecting Christianity. In my opinion, the glorious and splendid good news of God's active righteousness is largely unknown among so many church people. If you look at the definitions of preach and the definitions of sermon in a dictionary, you will see how little Christianity has gotten over to our culture. Sermon, according to the dictionary, means any discourse or speech, especially a lengthy and tedious reproof uh, and <laughs> exhortation. American Heritage Dictionary says, preach is to exhort, uh, to, uh, to discourse in a manner of a preacher, how with now usually with implications of officiousness and tediousness, quote, 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 a formal religious harangue. <laughs> Dictionaries don't tell us what words should mean. They tell us what man, what it, it does mean uh, in common discourse. Certainly this indicates that what our society has heard in the name of Christianity is not gospel, not grace, not the splendid righteousness that is love in action. But we see a retreat into the ministry of mere exhortation, rebuke, and religion of law and rules by which all and everyone is condemned. Who is he to be, I mean, who is it to be blamed? Sometimes, in all 
something in all human hearts drives us to find our confidence in ourselves. In short, to believe and trust in our own goodness, our own righteousness. Self-righteousness is, of all sins, among the worst. Jeremy Taylor once said, it's the body of sin that fights perpetually and dies divisibly and hopes to prevail. I was once sitting in my pew, innocent, listening to a sermon on Amos. My mind wandered to a meeting of the House of Bishops that I was to soon attend. I began in my heart uh, to compare myself uh, with my fellow bishops. I can tell you I was coming out very well with these comparisons. (laughs) Then the preacher quit preaching and went to meddling. And he poured Amos's plumb line into my pew. I was painfully humbled. Amos's plumb line shows that all of us are out of plumb. And we cannot become plumb by finding others whom we perceive as more unplumbed than we are. I came home and took the plumb line out of my toolbox and hung it over the stairs so it was the first thing that one sees coming in the front door. After two years, Martha said, "Uh, can't we take it down? (laughs) I replied, certainly. We can take it down as soon as there is no longer any self-righteousness in this household. It still hangs there. A decade later, as a reminder of our sinfulness and of God's splendid righteousness, how are we to relinquish our confidence in our own righteousness? How are we to leave our trust in law and rules that are killing us with condemnation? How are we to eliminate our miserable self-righteousness and receive the splendor of God's righteousness? We need desperately to be inspired to no longer trust in our own righteousness, but have the glorious and splendid righteousness. And we may, a good way to do this is to look at the life of Charles Wesley. He was a younger brother of John Wesley and was trained by his mother, a most remarkable woman, and was educated in the most prestigious of the Oxford colleges. He sailed to Georgia to be chaplain to Governor James Oglethorpe. He preached against sin in that little budding parish of Georgia. Preaching against sin is is like hunting for whales, according to John Donne. It's a huge target, and Charles found plenty of sin, but he did not proclaim the transforming power of the righteousness of God, by which God makes us righteous. He was a miserable failure in Georgia and returned to England in disgrace. He became ill and was visited by his friend Peter Baylor, a Moravian uh, whom he had met 
uh, on a previous time. Peter asked Charles that if he were to die, to what could he appeal before the judgment Christ, judgment seat of Christ? Charles' answer was very quick, that I have given my best endeavors to serve the Lord. Peter's face fell. It was not the answer he had hoped for. Could we pause for a moment and ask what your response would be? That you are doing your best? Or that you have given your best endeavors? Do you truly trust in God's active righteousness alone? Or are you confident that you are good enough? Peter gave Charles a copy of Luther's commentary on the epistle to the Galatians. Just a few days later, May the 21st, 1738, Charles confessed that he trusted not in his own endeavors or goodness, but in the active righteousness of Christ. I now found myself at peace with God and rejoice in the hope of loving him. In his heart, Charles had trusted that he was orthodox and righteous enough, especially in comparison with others. Now he knew himself before God to be an, uh, an unworthy sinner. He had a gracious God. Charles had at this time written no hymns, but now they flowed from his heart in a virtual Niagara. It is difficult to know precisely the number he wrote, but somewhere, according to one source, he wrote 7,300. And another source, 8,989 sermons were produced in the 50 years following his replacement of, the conf of his confidence in the ministry of the law with the glorious ministry of God's righteousness. Christ, to what can we attribute this sudden and incomparable deluge of creative hymn writing? Did his IQ change or his DNA? Did he just read a book on self-esteem? No. After being reared in the Church of England, vic vicarage, educated at Oxford, ordained to the priesthood, only now did he understand that by his endeavors he could never fulfill God's demands or be the person God intended him to be. Only by relinquishing this trust in his own goodness and replacing it with trust in God's splendid righteousness did he have peace and the freedom of incomparable achievement. If we are to recover, rather than sever our Christian roots, we must first recover the splendid and glorious ministry of God's righteousness as was given to Charles Wesley. Seventeen Wesley hymns are in the Episcopal book. More than anyone else, whenever we sing, and can it be, love divine, all loves excelling. Christ is risen today. 
or any other of the thousands of Charles Wesley's hymns, let us follow him by placing trust in our, uh, our unbecoming, let us, let us follow him by replacing the trust in our unbecoming self-righteousness with the splendid, glorious righteousness of Christ. Amen.